All right, take your Bibles, please. Turn with me to the book of James, chapter 2. James, chapter 2, we're looking at the text from verse 14 to verse 26. As we finish singing that last hymn, and I will give my life to to love and follow him. I pray that that is just the desire of your heart, just like Abraham and just like Rahab, to be men and women, boys and girls, who will follow the Lord, love him with all your heart, and follow him and and give everything to him. We are talking about this whole issue in James 2, 14 through 26. The whole issue about faith without works is dead. And we saw this morning that there's different views on this text, and uh, some that are outright wrong, that in order to be saved from the, from the lake of fire, from hell and torments, you must have faith plus works. We know that is to be rejected outright. That is completely false. There are two other views that are possible. One view is that the person who has faith without works is an unbeliever. They say they have faith, but they don't have any works to back it up. There's no evidence. There's no fruit in their life. And because there's no fruit, then they are not saved, and that faith is dead. It's a false faith and it's dead. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's not producing real fruit. And therefore, um, faith without works is dead. That is not my view. Now, that is, that is a view of many people, and that is fine. Uh, I think that there's uh, parts of it that we can, certainly can see with other scriptures as well. I think it's important for every believer to bear fruit. But as we saw this morning, listen, there are many, many scriptures that warn us against being barren and unfruitful. There's warnings that we are to be careful to maintain good works, Titus 3.8 and 3.14. We saw in Hebrews 6 that the writer to Hebrews said in verse 19, he wanted to see things that accompany salvation. Not just that you're saved by grace through faith, which you are, but to go beyond that in the sanctifying process and be transformed into the image of Christ and do visible good deeds. So we're not saved by works, but out of a life that's saved should flow all sorts of good works. All right. So my view is the third view about this, that the faith without works is dead. It's the faith of a believer, like you and I. They have faith that Jesus died for them and rose again. They are justified. They are going to heaven. They are in the family of God, but, they, but that's where they stopped. Their life is no longer vital or showing vitality and prosperity and productivity. They are saved, but that's it. They have faith, but it's without works. They're not doing anything. They're not acting on their faith. They're not living it out, meeting needs of others, and exercising their spiritual gifts. Therefore, it is dead. The word dead does not mean non-existent, much like a dead person is just not existent. That's not true. But a person who's dead is non-functioning, literally in the Greek, without working. You can't ask a dead man to get up and do anything because they cannot work. They are without working. Faith without works is, is simply a non-working faith. You still have it. You're still a child of God. But listen, it is not beneficial. It's not helpful to other people around you. They're not being ministered by your good works. And it's not profitable for you because under the chastening hand of God, severe consequences can come in, even premature physical death. And ultimately, at the reward seat of Jesus, there will be a loss of rewards instead of a receiving of rewards. So this is a very serious issue, and James is spending many verses on it. Look again at verse 14. What does a prophit? Where's the gain, my brethren? He's, he is talking to believers. I don't think he's talking about unbelievers who profess salvation. These are true believers who just do not do anything. What does a prophet, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, true, genuine faith in Jesus, but does not have works, 
Can faith save him? Remember the word save does not always mean saved from hell. The word salvation means saved from hell, but also the process that we're growing in and also our glorification, where our body is saved through the glorification. It's, it's said that in different places in the scriptures. So the word saved can refer not just to being saved from hell, but remember, saved from the chastening hand of God, saved from the, the consequences that are devastating with sin in our life, and saved from the embarrassment and the weeping at the reward seat of Christ. So there's a lot of ways that our, our bodies can be saved here on earth besides just the fact that we're saved from hell. All right? Look at the, look at the illustration we saw this morning. James 2.15, if a brother or sister, if a believer is naked and destitute of daily food, they have a real, serious, urgent need. And one of you, a believer, says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. It would be like seeing somebody with absolute urgent needs, physical needs that could be met, and simply saying, wow, bless you, God bless you, my friend, depart, and on your way, find food and clothing, go home, have food and clothing, But if I do nothing to help, if I don't act, if my faith is simply faith in Jesus Christ without some action tied to it, it's useless. It doesn't profit the person who's in great need. It doesn't profit me. As a matter of fact, it will bring divine chastening into my life. God will chasten me because I am not living like Jesus. 1 John 3, 16 through 19, John says this, If the love of God abides in you, then you will meet the, the needs of the urgent needs of believers around you. You will be for providing food and clothing and all sorts of needs to others if the love of God abides in you. He says, do not love just in word only, but love in word and deed. It all goes together. So if, you have, if you're a genuine believer and you have never served Christ, you've never intervened in somebody's life, you've never helped, you've never done something, the Bible says your faith, although it saves you from hell, it gains nothing. There's no profit. It helps nobody, neither you nor the people around you. So then he says in verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's not talking about our justification in God's eyes. That's a done deal at a moment in time. He is saying, if you have faith without works, it's useless. It's like a dead man. There's no action. There's nothing. Nothing visible that, that shows Then he gives this little conversation. Remember the story. Pretend that there's another man right up here with me. Here I am. I'm a a person who has faith and works. Genuine faith, but also a life of, of works flowing out of it. Here's a person who is genuinely saved, but has done nothing. They're not involved in any ministries. They have nothing going on in their church, nothing going on in their family, nothing going on in the community where they're meeting needs of any kind. They are simply a believer in Jesus. Here's the conversation. The conversation in verse 18. But someone, a believer with works, will say, you have faith, true, genuine faith, but they don't have anything to show by it, but they have faith, and I have faith and works. I have faith just like you, but I also have works. You show me your faith without your works. Can that be done, by the way? Can anybody show their faith in Jesus Christ without some type of visible manifestation by good deeds? The answer is no, you can't. Faith is invisible. God knows but nobody else does. So the, the challenge is, you say you have faith, and I agree you do, show it to me. Let me see it. I want to see something. This person's going to say, I can't, without doing something. I can't show you my faith just standing here. All right? The next part, and I will show you my faith by my works, by my, 
by the deeds that are done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 19 is also, here's, listen. Now, I, I don't want to take too much time on this, but I want you to see how I come to this conclusion. In the English translation, beginning in verse 18, there's quotation marks. We know it's clear that James is quoting something. He says, but someone will say, quote. You all agree you see that? But someone will say, and then he gives us a conversation. The Greek has no quotation marks. It is left up to us to figure out where do the quotation marks end. Let me tell you what's going on in the English translations. The English translations give the end quotation marks in four different places, depending on what version you read. Some only take the first phrase. Some take the, the half of the phrase. Uh, some take the whole verse 18, and they say 19 is the new part. Nobody really knows, but I have a clue. Let me tell you why. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul does the same thing. Paul says, but someone will say, how is, the how is the resurrection body raised up? With what form does it come? And then he says, oh foolish man, let me tell you. He uses a word like, oh foolish man. And right then, you know, he's now going to address the conversation. Does it make sense? Paul does the same thing in Romans 9. In Romans 9, he says, but someone will say... And then he tells us what someone will say. And then he says, but oh man, let me tell you what it really means. And he says, oh man. So in this conversation that James is showing, look with me. How would you interpret this? James 2, beginning in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have work. Show me your faith. When does the quotation marks end? When does James make a reference to something about like, oh foolish man? Verse 20. Do you see that? I think the quotes end at the end of 19. You don't find that in an English translation. You don't. So I'm kind of going out on a limb because translators of the Bible don't end the quotation marks at 19. They end them at 18 or earlier. But let me tell you how much sense this makes. You with me? Here's how much sense this makes to end the quotations at the end of verse 19. Here's the conversation. Remember, everybody, the conversation is, I'm a believer with works, this person's a believer without works. I say to them, you show me your faith without any works. You can't do it, by the way. And I will show you my faith by my works. And then he says this, you believe that there is one true God, and you do well to believe that. You have good theology. Your doctrine is right on. There is one God, and you believe that, and you do well. But even the demons believe there's one true God, and they tremble before him. They fear God because they know they don't love God, they don't serve him. They serve him with evil deeds, not good deeds. And if the demons realize, I don't love God, the demons are saying, I don't love God and I don't serve him, and I am going to get a fearful judgment, and they tremble about it, a believer, listen, there's believers in our church probably like this. They have faith, genuine faith in Christ, but no works, no ministries. There's no reaching out to others. There's, no, there's nothing they should be like the demons. They have good theology, but they better fear because they're going to stand before Jesus and they're going to see rewards being taken away. Jesus is going to say, I gave you spiritual life on earth and you did nothing with it. It profited you. Not only did you not profit anybody else, but it brought no rewards to you here at the Bema seat. Come into the kingdom. You are my child. You're in my family, but you're not going to enjoy heaven like those who have given their life for the Lord on earth. Do you see the seriousness of this? If there's anybody in our church who has faith without works, they are like the demons. They understand there's only one God. They have good theology, 
but they have never done anything with it. Nothing. That is fearful. We need to be such encouragers. You, listen, we need to be encouragers that if, if there are people that have been saved for many years and never been involved and never been faithful and they've never, been in, ne- they've never done anything, if they have the gift of teaching, they have, they've never taught, if they have the gift of encouragement, they've never encouraged. If they have the gift of helps, they've never helped. If they have the gift of mercy, they've never shown mercy. If they have the gift of leadership, they've never led. If there are people like that, they are right here where James says, your faith is dead. Beware. Be afraid. This is such a stern warning. So do you see why I end the quotation marks at the end of verse 19? And I'll tell you what. I am very sure that's where they should end because then James says in verse 20, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? It's a challenge. He's saying, do you want to learn something? If you have faith without works, it is useless. It will not benefit you here. It will not benefit you at the reward seat of Christ. It will bring divine displeasure and chastening in your life, and it will not help anybody around you. Wow. Do not be a man or woman with faith without works. Now, he's going to see that was just the recap from the morning. Sorry. But I wanted to make sure you understand the quotations. Do you get the quotation thing? Listen, I have searched English translations, and nobody puts it in the end of 19. But I really think, based on Romans 9 and 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul interrupts his argument with, listen, do you want to learn, O foolish man? I think right there is where the conversation stopped, and he's now teaching again. Okay, let's go on to tonight. We have only five verses to cover tonight, verses 21 through 26. James is now going to pull two examples out of the Bible of men, a man and a woman who had faith in God and they had works. They weren't saved by works. Don't ever misconstrue that. They were not saved by works, but listen, this man and this woman were so phenomenal. They had genuine trust in the Lord for salvation to get them out of hell and to bring them into the family of God, but they backed it up with the life of visible works. Listen to how James teaches this. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, when we see justified, we get hung up and we think only of justification in the fact that we're declared righteous so we don't go to hell. The word justified, it means to be declared righteous, not made righteous, but declared righteous. There's two ways you can use this. Abraham was declared righteous when he believed God. And God knew it. And at that moment, he was righteous. He was declared righteous. But he had to be declared righteous before men as well. He didn't have to, but he did. When was he declared righteous before men? When he actually stood up and did a visible act. He actually obeyed God with a physical act. Then everybody could say, wow, Abraham truly does believe God. Before that, it might have been a private issue between him and God. But now, he's moved out and he's actually done something. James is saying this. If anybody in the church has faith in God, but you're not doing something, you better get busy. You better do something to make your faith visible. Not, that, not so that you go to heaven. You're already going to heaven. But that you could be called a friend of God. Because that's what Abraham's called. So, when was Abraham's faith visible? When he offered Isaac his son on the altar. You know the story. Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, his name was Abram back then, Abram, I'm going to make of you a great nation. You're going to have descendants as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. But Abraham said, but Lord, I don't have a child. I don't have a son. Then Abraham says in Genesis 15, well, okay, 
God may, already made the promise of many descendants. Abram doesn't have any children. So you can almost hear how this goes. Um, after the days of Melchizedek, and he has all this, all this reward, and he gives it away, God says, Abraham, don't worry, fear not. I will be your exceedingly great reward, Genesis 15. Then Abraham turns to God and says, God, literally, you made a promise that I would have just a child. I would, have a, I would be a father of a great nation. What will you give me? I don't have a child. Do I have to take my servant Eliezer and have him be my, my child and the heir, of my, the heir of my promises? God said this, Abraham, come with me outside the tent. He walks with Abraham outside the tent and he says, look to the stars. As many stars, that's as many descendants as you will have. Think of the sand of the sea. All the grains of sand, that's how many children you will have. Could Abraham have children? At this point, he could, but he's getting old because he's going to have Ishmael naturally in a little while. But he believes God. He believes God's promise. I'm going to have a child. I'm I'm an old man, but I will have a child. He believed God, and at that moment, Genesis 15, 6, God gave him his righteousness. Done deal. It'll never be rescinded. Isn't that great? 20 to 30 years later, we're talking 20 to 30 years later, Abraham has Isaac, the son of promise. Everything that God promised is going to come through Isaac, this young man, maybe 20 years old, maybe 18, who knows? He's a, he's a young man, though. And God tells Abraham one day, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. I want you to bring him to one of the mountains I will show you on Moriah. And there, I want you to kill him. And then I want you to light a fire underneath him, and I want you to burn him up as a burnt offering to me. Abraham, hold nothing back. Give him to me. Kill him and burn him and give me the ashes. Abraham knows all of the promises of God are bound up in this boy. And if this boy dies, there can't be another one because God said it's Isaac in which your seed shall be called. There's no other Isaac. It's this one only. There's not like another child he could have later in the day. This is the only one that all the promises come through. At that moment, what did Abraham do? Early in the morning, immediately, he gets up and he goes with Isaac on a three-day journey to get to Moriah. And there, with knife in hand, he is ready to kill his son. At, at, with thinking of no cost of himself, he is willing to kill his son and burn him up just as God required. At that moment, Abraham was declared righteous in the eyes of man, not God. God already justified him 20 years before. But now everybody could see through a physical act, here is a man who believes in God. Here is a man who trusts God with his whole heart. His allegiance, his devotion is fully to God. This is evident to all. That's what James says. That's what it means to be justified by your works. It doesn't mean you're, you're out of hell because of your works, but everybody can see visibly that you are declared righteous because you believe God and now you've backed it up with some acts of, of ministry, acts of service. That's powerful. God is asking us to do no less. I mean, he's not asking us to offer people as burnt offerings and things like that. But if Abraham is willing to do the hardest thing, couldn't we do some of the more easy things that God has called us to do? So this is what James says. This is what the Lord says in James 2. 
Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Look at verse 22, this question. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? So what was going on with Abraham at this point? If, listen, if your faith is dead, the word dead means workless. It is not working. It's like a dead man. Inoperative, it is not working. But with Abraham, his faith was working with his deed to reveal that he truly believed God. But it's more than that. Look at verse 22, the rest of it. His faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made what? Perfect. By doing good deeds, by obeying God and doing his will, your faith is made stronger, better, and more complete. It, is, it grows to maturity. This whole theme of maturity starts in chapter 1. Trials bring maturity into our life. Um, chapter 3 talks about maturity. I think the whole book about James is grow into maturity. Don't be immature. Grow into maturity. How do you do it? Count all your trials joy. Get rid of temptations and the lust that would defeat you. Flee from them. Abandon them. Seek after God's wisdom. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't play favorites. And by all means, don't have a faith that is useless. Don't have a faith that is dead. Be busy in ministry. Find things to do. Find ways to serve, but do something. All right? Don't sit back. So this is the whole idea. Verse 22, one more, I want to bring one, oh, one more thing in verse 22. Do you see that faith was working together? That word see, it means to look with visible eyes. Do you see? Can you visibly see Abraham's faith? The answer is yes, I can visibly see it. Not that we're walking around saying, hey, everybody look at me. I'm a hotshot Christian. Everybody should see me by my good works. That's proud and arrogant. That's to be forbidden. But it is simply just do it. Be busy. Serve others. Use your gifts. And then let God do the rest. He gives a second example. Well, verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled. Now everybody could finally see Abraham really did believe, which says Abraham believed God. Genesis 15, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And as a result, he was called the friend of God. All right. I don't want to belabor this point, but listen to me, everybody. Look up here. Is everybody a friend of God? And I would say the answer is no. Unsaved people are not friends of God. They are enemies and rebels with their wicked minds alienated from him forever till they trust Jesus. But is every believer a friend of God? And I would say... All believers have been accepted by him and brought, are brought into his family. But I would say not every believer is a friend of God. And I want to be careful about this. But not every believer is a friend of God. Are you a friend of God? John fifteen fourteen in the upper room, Judas is taken off to betray the Lord. He has only 11 disciples. It's dark. It's cold. The lights are flickering. Jesus knows in hours I'm going to be on the cross. I'm going to be, be beaten beyond measure. I'm going to go through six trials, and I'm going to be hung on the cross the next morning. He knows it. He gathers the disciples around. He says, my joy be in you. Let my joy be full in you. And then in John 15, 14, he says, you are my friends if, what? You are my friends if you do what I have commanded you. You do what I've commanded you, you're my friend. Because your purpose your interests and your values are the same with me. And that's what friends are. Friends have the same purpose, interests, and values. And if you have the same as God, then you'll be doing it. You'll be obeying him. And as you obey his word, as you're a doer of his word, he then says, you're a friend of mine. 
Now, listen, I'm glad I'm in his family. I'm glad I'm a child of his. But boy, to have God as my friend, that is pretty impressive. It's, it's a great honor. And Abraham was called a friend of God. Not just because he had faith in the Lord for eternal salvation, but because he lived it out. Can you imagine when God in heaven sees Abraham ready to kill his son? He's thinking, Abraham loves me more than he loves his son, and he loves his son a lot. Abraham loves me. He's never seen heaven. He's seen my son in pre-incarnate form, but he's, but he's never really seen me, and yet Abraham loves me. And he is willing to give everything for me. He's my friend. I think that's pretty special. Wouldn't you love to just live your life out so fully for Christ that he would be in heaven saying, wow, there is my friend. He loves me. He's willing to, to do whatever I command him, no matter what the cost to himself. So Jesus said that in John uh, 15, 14. And then here it's also, he was called the friend of God. But let's, uh, verse 24, to finish this up, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. He's not talking about justification from hell. He's talking about justification in the fact that you are declared righteous so someone can see it. God sees it when you trust him right away, but it might be years later, like Abraham, 20 years, 30 years later, that something visible like that shows up. Although I think Abraham had other events in his life that showed faith, but for whatever reason, this is the one that was picked out. Listen, you want to be able to say, I'm a Christian, and I, and I have visible works to prove it. I can show you I'm a Christian by my works. I'm not saved by them. I don't glory in them. It's the work of God in my life, but hey, I'm a believer. I'm not ashamed. But now, quickly, as we close, James gives one more example from the Old Testament. Hey, it's not just Abraham. Abraham is, first of all, he's a man. He is Jewish. Well, yes, he's Jewish. Um, he is not only that, but he is the father of the faithful, and he is a man greatly respected. True? So what does James do when he wants to find another visible sign of faith? He says, oh, let me think here. In my Old Testament, I know, perfect example. It's a woman, Rahab. She is not Jewish. She's Gentile. Not only is she Gentile, she's not respected. She's disreputable, but she's a harlot. And, uh, And so let's see what her life is like when she knows the Lord. So here it is. The next one, verse 25. Likewise, in a similar manner, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So we bring up one verse on Rahab. Now, you know the story of Rahab. I don't want to have to go through all the details of it, but you know the big part of the story. Rahab has heard about the Exodus. She heard about the miracles of God and the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea. Listen, that news travels fast. Three million Jewish people get over in one night, dry ground through the Red Sea. This is incredible. Whoever did that is some God. Most people are not believers. Rahab, this foreigner, this Gentile living in the city of Jericho, she believes. And when the spies come to her house, the two Jewish spies come to her house, and they're looking for safety because they're going to die They will lose their physical life if they don't get help. They are helpless and they are needy. Do you see why this ties into James' story? Here's people that are helpless and needy. Somebody has to show good works. It's not like depart. Like Rahab could have said to the Jewish people, oh, 
depart, and, uh, and God bless you with full protection as they are gunned down, well, speared down, just down the block from her house. That's no works. She's going to show by her fa- that her faith in God is true by saying, come into my house, come in, and I'll hide you. Do you see that? So uh, she brings them in, but she says to the spies, I know, this is Joshua 2, I know that your God is God in heaven and on earth. He is the only God. She confesses her faith before she even takes them in. She's already a believer in the God of Israel. Now she's demonstrating it by protecting the physical life, meeting the needs of these people that need help with their physical lives, but it also spares her physical life. I think James is bringing it up for that reason as well. Not only that faith can be seen visibly in men and women, Jews and Gentiles, all sorts of economic. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. You can demonstrate faith in Christ visibly. But I think he's also using it for the fact that if you don't demonstrate your faith, if you're not doing something, there is a divine judgment and God will end your life early. I'll just put it simply, he will. For the Corinthians, he took some of their lives prematurely. Before they were supposed to die, he killed them ahead of time out of, out of chastening. He was saying, I'm not going to let Satan use these Corinthians to destroy all this church, the whole church. I'm going to take them out and kill them and bring them home to heaven. He brings them home to heaven and they, they died early. I think James is saying, because of her deeds as a faithful believer in God, she preserved her life and others. And if you do that, you'll preserve your life and others as well. I mean, I'm not guaranteeing long life or anything, but I'm saying God has a way of working these things out. We trust him. All right. So listen to this again, verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? Yes, she was. When she received the messengers, she was already a believer and she demonstrates her faith by this and she sent them out another way. She met the needs of needy and helpless people. She spared their lives and as a result, her life was spared. Quick side note on Rahab. What did the spies say to Rahab before they left? They said, Rahab, when we come back, when, is, when the Israelites come back to attack Jericho, whoever is in your house will be spared. So if Rahab leaves the house, she is dead. What does she have to do with her family and friends in a matter of days? She has to convince them. She has to go to mom and dad. Mom, dad, you have to understand, there's this great judgment in coming upon our, our city, and our city walls will be taken, and, and the Israelites will come in, and they will burn and destroy and kill everyone. If you want to be spared, come into my house. Oh, Rahab, you are full of stories. We've got our own religion. We're doing our own thing. Don't get us into another thing. We're, we're happy like we are. Brothers, brothers, quick, You've got to come in because Jericho is going to fall into the hands of the Israelites and you will be killed unless you get into the house. Sisters, Rahab has sisters. Sisters, you must come into the house. You must believe my message. I cannot be more earnest. The God of Israel, the God that spread the Red Sea and allowed them in and and destroyed the Egyptians is now at our gate and will destroy our city. If you do not come in, sisters, you will perish. So after the walls fall down, and, Jer- and Joshua says, get Rahab and all, whoever she got in there, get them out. Who comes out of the house? Rahab, mother, father, and brothers. Sisters is missing in the second part. I don't know if her sisters never went in. I just don't know. But it says, she said she had mother, father, brothers, sisters. But who came out? Mother, father, brothers. But still, Rahab was a woman of great visible works, wasn't she? 
She wasn't saved by them. She didn't get favor from God for being more, to, to be doing these good deeds. But it justified her before others. They said, here is a woman who truly loves the Lord. As a matter of fact, there was one young man in the Israelite camp that really liked Rahab. Who was that? Salmon. And together, they have children that end up with King David into the line of Christ. Rahab is a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. What a woman of faith. All right, what's the encouragement? We're going to close right here. Faith without works is dead. It is possible for you as a believer to be here having faith in Jesus, being justified in his sight. You will go to heaven. You will spend all eternity in heaven. But maybe at at, at a great loss, a loss of rewards, maybe some chastening on earth. I'm not sure. Definitely, you're not going to benefit a lot of people around you. But if you have faith that is working, it is vibrant, it is productive, it is prosperous, it is growing, then you will be looking out for needs all the time. What do they need? What do they need? I wonder if I can, could I pray for them? Could I encourage them? Could I write them a note? Could I, could I do something for them? And again, it doesn't always have to be physical, but, you know, but it, a lot of it is because we're physical people. As I said this morning, if the whole ministry was left up to me here, I can only visit so many people. I can only travel so many miles. I mean, I, granted, granted, I, I, I love Warren, and, but he's seen me almost every day. He must be getting tired of me. You must think, oh, there's Brian again. But you know what? I mean, can you imagine? Not that everybody needs to go down there all at once. That would be claustrophobic. That would make everybody claustrophobic, especially me. But I'll tell you what, more ministry can take place if I'm not the one doing it. You know, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it all. So get everybody involved. Everybody's writing notes. Everybody's calling. Everybody's doing something. All the needs are met. The world sees what's going on there. They come to Christ, and on and on we go. Faith without works is dead, but a living faith, a vibrant faith, meets needs, great rewards in heaven. Very clear, I think. Anyways, that's the text. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. We're just thinking about faith without works being dead. Ineffective, doesn't work. Shows nothing, helps nobody. There's no profit, there's no gain. I thank you, Father, that We do have a vibrant faith here. There's many who trust Jesus and also many who serve in many capacities. I just don't want to be um, harsh on anybody. I I just want to motivate and stir up and encourage people to think about the future when we are raptured and we stand before you at the Bema seat. I don't want anybody to be weeping and and feeling um, loss. I want them to be encouraged and strengthened and the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So, Father, I want, and I also want to see the ministry built up and more acts of service and ministry and humility and joy and fellowship and all of these things taking place in the church. And as that happens, great unity is made and, and, and guarded and kept, and the world will st- see and be astonished because they will see that we love one another and they will know that we are disciples of Jesus. Father, I pray every man and every woman here, every boy and girl tonight, would truly be a friend of yours not just because they have acceptance through their faith in Jesus, not just because they're born into your family, but because they are obedient to your word. They are doers of the word and not hearers only. And then you look down and you call them your friend. What an honor and a privilege to have such a great God also be our friend. So Father, as we strive for 
faithfulness and great joy and service. Help us to remember it's about Christ. It's all about Jesus, not us. Give us opportunity this week to reach the last and to encourage brothers and sisters to be able to meet urgent needs. Thank you for providing for us. Help us to be wise about all that we do and all that we say. In Jesus' name, amen.